This episode is brought to you by the Arvada Center because they're kicking off their summer concert series in June. Relax under the stars at the Arvada Center's outdoor amphitheater and take in acts like Melissa Etheridge, Big Richard, Tower of Power, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, The Spin Doctors, and so much more. Concerts are scheduled for June through September. You can find a whole schedule of events and get your tickets today at arvadacenter.org. That's arvadacenter.org. Today on CityCast Denver. When I spoke with Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser a few weeks ago about his response to the opioid crisis, we talked a lot about fentanyl. It's a super potent synthetic opioid that was involved in almost half of all overdose deaths in Colorado last year. And the problem is only getting worse. Weiser told me that he had been working with state lawmakers to address that huge spike in fentanyl-related deaths. And last week, Governor Jared Polis stood beside some of those lawmakers to finally unveil a new bill to do just that. After thoughtful collaboration and months of conversations with law enforcement, with prosecutors, this legislation truly begins to address the scourge of fentanyl in our communities. And its legacy will be saving lives and holding criminals accountable. Some in law enforcement say the bill isn't tough enough, while others say it merely perpetuates the failed war on drugs. So I invited my friend Lisa Rayville, executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center, to help me sift through the rhetoric and explain her response to the bill. Today is Tuesday, March 29th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. How you doing? Good. I'm so starstruck. Every time I hear you guys, I'm like, ah. <laughs> Lisa Rayville, welcome back to CityCast Denver. Thanks so much for having me today, Bree. So you spend a lot of fo- time with folks who use drugs. Every day. Every day. So obviously, this is it, the work that you do is in the news because there's this new bill. It's just been introduced. Can you talk about what is in this bill? Sure. It just came out over the weekend. So there are, you know, it's 46 pages. <laughs> so we're doing our best. They do have some uh, harm reduction of naloxone, fentanyl testing strips, funding. Most of that came from the Behavioral Health Task Force recommendations that were out last fall. Um, our concern is the drug-induced homicides, uh, mandatory treatment. And while it isn't in the introduced bill, we do know that there's a large push for refelonization of uh, under four grams uh, of drugs. Um, and and that, that isn't in this current one, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was added. Okay, so that's sort of what you, I, I know you were kind of like anticipating that being part of this, which is further criminalization. What would that mean? Well, so right now, under four grams is a misdemeanor, um, okay. and that, that passed in 2019, and so it made all felony possession a misdemeanor under four grams. Uh, and when we were at the Capitol at that time, we had found out that there are, were about 200 people in Department of Corrections every year just for personal possession. And if you're in Department of Corrections under six months, you don't get any sort of substance use treatment or anything like that. Um, 
you're also branded as a felon, meaning you can't get housing or a job. And then people are like, why can't you flourish? I'm so surprised. Um, so that had been some concern. There'd been some misinformation too, that people think that people are walking around the streets with powdered fentanyl. That's not what we have here. It's kind of threefold. So first and foremost, um, we are finding fentanyl mixed in with other drugs in Colorado. Uh, we've had fentanyl in Colorado since about 2017, 2018. It started on the East Coast in about 2014. So we have found it in heroin, meth, and cocaine. Then we have the illicitly pressed uh, pills uh, locally called the blues. Uh, that has a little fentanyl, a lot of fentanyl, or no fentanyl in them. Uh, my folks who are heroin users are actually having a difficult time obtaining heroin because due to climate change and lack of poppy cultivation, uh, the shift has really happened to fentanyl, and which can be made into in a lab. Fentanyl, so what they're doing is they're smoking the blues. They smoke between 5 to 20 pills a day. Opioid users never want to be in withdrawal. It's physically painful. The flu time's 1,000. Uh, folks are finding benefit by smoking because they're no longer having to break their skin by injecting. Anytime you break your skin, you're at risk of infection, so it's keeping them out of the emergency department for those skin tissue infections. Um, it's also actually reducing stigma among people who use drugs. People who smoke think they're better than injectors. People who drink think they're better than everybody, <laughs> right? So, so there's a lot, uh, you know, there's kind of that reduced stigma that's happening too. It's just a newer shift. On the law enforcement side of this, the bill seems to focus quite a bit on this idea of the dealer. Um, it would increase penalties for anyone manufacturing, distributing, or selling a substance with any amount of fentanyl in it. What do you, what do you make of this focus on the dealer? Well, it's... It's as old as time, Bree. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, last year, the DEA had a $3.1 billion budget and over 9,000 employees. They cannot arrest their way out of this. Um, you know, most of the time when they are trying to go after mid-level dealers, you go uh, for low-level dealers and try to work up the chain. Uh, oftentimes just ending up bargaining with lower level sellers and then they are incarcerated. And most lower level sellers are also people who use too. Um, so, so this fine line between, you know, dealer and someone who uses um, is really tricky for a lot of folks. And, you know, the, the cartel has been doing this for a very long time and, you know, they have a lot of buffers between the streets and them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it just it isn't realistic to think we're going to arrest our way out of drug use when we've never been able to do it before, ever. Yeah. But this has me also thinking about the drug-induced homicide aspect of this bill that you had mentioned earlier. Can you explain what that is in this bill and then what your concerns are with it? It would essentially make every overdose death a murder investigation. We believe that folks will then never call 911 because they're going to be so afraid of being connected to that and they'll actually increase overdose deaths. Now, it's tough enough to call 911 right now uh, because oftentimes you still get law enforcement. They still come in. They still warrant check. They still lurk around. Um, but also people, you know, we have some issues with paramedics um, and healthcare providers when they're trying, when they're going into the emergency department to be observed. So, so there's a lot of um, bridging to access that we need to be pushing forward with, but we are not supportive of drug-induced homicides at all. And so we're extremely concerned that is in this bill. I want to try to paint a picture for a listener who is never actively used or has not had any experience with this. So scenario saying, I call you up, I say, hey, Lisa, I've got some stuff. You want to hang out, it's party, whatever. So you and I, I don't know, smoke 
heroin. I don't know. What, what would be the thing we're doing together? We're smoking the blues, babe. We're smoking the blues. And then you overdose. I don't call the police because I'm concerned that they're going to show up. I'm a, they assume I'm a dealer. They assume or they, I'm just in the room. I might, I'm, I could be charged with a homicide. So I'm definitely not going to call the police. You're just going to, my friend's just going to die. Right. And you're going to feel terrible about that. Absolutely. And people overdose for a lot of reasons. You know, it is an unpredictable drug supply, periods of abstinence, mixing, using alone. We need to be having a better conversation. And right now, if you're somebody who uses drugs and you want a safe supply, you, pr- you really only have alcohol and cannabis. Sure, sure. And those are legal here in the state of Colorado. So they're regul. What you're saying is they're regulated. So often this drug exceptionalism about alcohol versus any other drug is incredibly problematic. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that exceptionalism a little bit in talking points like my I met a woman whose son bought one pill at a party and he didn't know it was laced and he overdosed. Um, but we're not talking about the user, the, the person who uses drugs every day who, you know, um, buys heroin, maybe shoots up at home and then goes on to work. Like I'm thinking about my my brother's friend who just passed away this, in the last year. And it was like he doesn't get the same kind of story we don't get the nice you know what I mean not saying that the kid that ODs at a party is not equally loved and we want them to also be alive but this is a bigger picture conversation than just these hysterical moments that tend to catch the media versus people that overdose every day well I appreciate you bringing that up too because I thought we'd have a much better conversation since uh Union Station became the de facto injection and use site um you know, and I've had great conversations with RTD. It's been uh, difficult to have other conversations with other folks about that. But I, I certainly thought um, that would kind of propel us into this legislative session of, you know, we've got to be bold. We've got to be innovative. We've got to be evidence-based interventions. We're, we, we're a little behind on the fentanyl stuff, even with harm reduction. You know, we've got to... We've got to get there. We've got to save lives. We can do this together. And, you know, we're in, we're in an election year. Um, but it's just really disheartening as being on the front lines. So you brought up Union Station, which I think is something that a lot of folks are talking about. And I, I hear this a lot. There's open drug use there. I don't want to go there. It's I feel uh, unsafe. I seen dirty needles. What would be the solution or what what do you think we could do to to fix that? Well, and you know me, I'll overdose prevention site, Lily. Uh, but it would look different than that, too. I think when people see a civic center, when people see a union station, it looks chaotic because they're not really incentivized as a community there, right? At our place, you know, we're the state's largest syringe access program. We've been around for 20 years. I've moved four locations because I don't own a building. Uh, Our folks are invested in the health and safety of the community in which we serve. Because we're that one safe space in the entire world, they can talk realistically about their drug use. So they take it out of the neighborhood. So I think sometimes when I bring up Union Station, they're like, oh, it's so chaotic and wild. It's like, well, we run a tighter ship over here, but they're also incentivized that they want this place to to stay here. If we got kicked out for neighbor drama, we'd simply have nowhere to go. So folks do an incredibly great job, um, you know, being kind to themselves and others and taking things out of the neighborhood. So sometimes I think, you know, when we bring that civic center up or we bring that union station up, oftentimes they think it'll look just as chaotic, but I've, I've never had that problem. Um, you can ask the Denver Police Department. 
<laughs> so I want to back up a little bit to something we were talking about earlier with the deal, the dealers because I had Attorney General Phil Weiser on the show a, a couple of weeks ago. And he said he thinks about dealers of fentanyl as killers. And I understand that argument to a certain extent, but I also know that there's like this one image of the big bad drug dealer. And I'll say from my experience um, – I have friends who were dealers and they were not connected to the cartel or making millions of dollars. They were just regular people in the world. What do you think the attorney general is getting wrong with this generalization or, or in general, what is this this picture of the drug dealer? What are we missing? You know, by the time that drugs get down to the streets, you don't know what's in them. Um, so no one's lurking around trying to murder you. You know, um, the you know the more drugs you have, the more money you can make. So it's being cut quite a ways because. So I would envision too, like the very top person probably has no idea once it gets down to the bottom, and the the part the low level seller clearly has no idea either. Um, so. I've never really supported that narrative because oftentimes drugs sell themselves. And, you know, sometimes they talk about, you know, preying on people. It's like, well, in, in our experience and on the front lines and working with people who use drugs every day, people are seeking drugs. Mm. Um, you know, I think where the, kind of the information, where the narrative is happening too is that like everything is accidental which a lot of it is, right? A lot of people don't know. But now, because we don't have heroin anymore, people are seeking fentanyl. So it, you know, so some of it is that people don't know what's in it, and then some people are actively seeking it because it's an opioid. So, according to Colorado Newsline, part of this bill proposes requiring people convicted of a certain crimes involving fentanyl to undergo addiction treatment as a condition of probation. And you mentioned this earlier too, this mandatory treatment aspect. And on the surface, I mean, if you're selling selling this bill, that sounds great, right? We want everybody to get into treatment and we want everybody to get better or whatever. Um, but I, I, what is the practical applications of this? How do we, is making it mandatory for folks to get treatment going to help? Well, I'm confused because it, it in there in a couple of places it says mandatory residential treatment. Yeah, I and saw that too. I, I I need to hear more from treatment providers because I'm not sure they were at the table, so I'm unclear what that would look like. I mean, inpatient is a story of hope to get into now. And then are we having people after mandatory treatment released unhoused? Um, I think it's very tall ass to ask unhoused folks to be sober with all the crisis management that happens. Um, besides medication-assisted treatment, uh, which is now the gold standard for opioid use, we don't really have many other forms of treatment, um, especially for stimulant users, too. So I was confused and concerned, um, and it puts people at higher risk of overdosing post-treatment. And so if they didn't want to be there, are we thinking they're going to be pushing forward and flourishing or are they going to go back to what they know and where they feel comfortable, especially if they're unhoused, especially with the crisis management that happens? For example, you know, you've got these winter, you know, it's what snowed once every uh, week for 11 weeks in a row. Um, a lot of my folks use meth um, who are unhoused so they can walk around the city and not lay down and freeze to death. And I think we need to get to a place, too, where not everybody is going to live a life of recovery. Yeah. And we have to be okay with that, too. Right. So I've been trying to put myself in other people's shoes and understand why there might be this aversion to certain harm reduction tactics, like um, overdose prevention sites, which you mentioned earlier. And an overdose prevention site is this place where people can come and use drugs safely, and there's people on staff who can assist if someone's overdosing. 
And I'm just wondering, like, how would I explain this to someone who says, like, why would I want to give people a place to use drugs? Like, how is this helping people who use drugs? Yeah. Right now, we can do everything to prevent and eliminate the transmission of HIV and hepatitis C, resources, referrals, naloxone, fentanyl testing strips, but it's not legal for them to use on my property. Use and possession on the property can get the property seized. So they go a few blocks away to an alley or business bathroom, and they use there often alone. Not only they're using there, they're overdosing there. Not only they're overdosing there, they're dying of overdoses in public places. So when we don't have an overdose prevention site, it doesn't mean that folks aren't using. It means they're using and dying in Starbucks, in King Supers, in libraries, in RTD transit stations. That's what's happening here in our community. So for us, you know, first and foremost, we love people who use drugs and don't think that they should die. Second of all, it's a larger community trauma issue. I don't want you coming up on somebody that is overdosed and died, right? Last year in Denver, we lost 450 folks. The year before, 370. The year before that, 225. That was a lot of people that were found by either a loved one or a random stranger. And that can be problematic. I don't want it to be like that. I want them here with me. It would simply be a program arm of an already flourishing syringe access program, maybe on the southeast corner of 8th and Lincoln. The (laughs) drugs are pre-obtained, meaning they're not bought or sold on site. It reduces skin tissue infections. It promotes proper disposal. And it's currently happening in 12 countries and 150 sites. No one's ever died of an overdose at one of these places because there's a trained professional there to recognize and respond. And again, the same cannot be said for Starbucks, King Supers, Jimmy John's. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thinking about this thing I think that Attorney General Weiser said to me was one of his concerns was that uh, it would just become sort of like a hot spot for dealing. Like people are going to stand outside and share drugs or sell drugs. What do you think about that? <laughs> so um, it's like I said, it's currently happening in 12 countries and 150 sites. And this he's not the first one that has said something like that, right? Sure, sure. If it, if it was incredibly problematic to every community, other communities wouldn't push forward. You know, why wouldn't a drug seller stand out front now and try to sell and buy, right? We run a really tight ship. Folks have to take it out of the neighborhood. They're also not idiots because if you're buying and selling out front of the syringe exchange, then we'd have cops over here right. all the time. <laughs> I definitely can't have cops over here all the time. People know not to buy, sell, or use in this area because that can be incredibly problematic for us. They love us. We treat them right. They treat us right. And it's not a problem. So I'm not concerned about that at all because I currently run a tight ship. Again, call the Denver Police Department. And and they'll tell you we don't respond to calls oh, around the Harm Reduction Action Center. Yes. I mean, the former commander of this district would come to community meetings and has this whole story arc about, you know, he, they refer to us. We get more referrals to our program from the Denver Police Department than we do from any of the hospitals, which is weird, uh, but we'll take it. But law enforcement knows they can't arrest their way out of it, and they want the experts working with this population. So, yeah, so I'm not worried about that at all because that's not what's currently happening. They don't want their name on the street for being the one that got us closed down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you've developed a relationship with folks who use drugs and they know they can come to the harm reduction action center and they don't want that to go away so lisa what do you think is missing from this legislation like what if you could make if you could ask for one change to it um what would you like to see if we're if we're working on legislation around uh people who use drugs 
One change? Uh, I mean, many changes. <laughs> well, here's what I would do. I'd like to pop out that criminalization piece, add in an overdose prevention site, uh, and, you know, have a task force or a panel get together to talk about what safe supply would look like with harm reduction and medical experts. Lisa Rayville, I love talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell a friend about us? Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Hold on, my washer's on. (laughs) I had to soak my dog's bed. He puked in it. <laughs> <laughs>